Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. I'm so thrilled to welcome one of my amazing and inspiring friends to the podcast this week. Today, I'm talking with Kate Bosworth. She's joining us to talk about everything from her childhood to Blue Crush, to meeting and working with her amazing husband, Michael, and her newest and probably most raw project, Kind.est. It's a destination for her to open up, connect more deeply with people, to explore, to share the things that she loves, which you might love too, and of course, encourage kindness. She just launched it, and guys, it's so special. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Do you like my Disneyland sweater? (laughs) Honestly, I really do. I'm into it. it. Look how cute you look. I haven't put, like, makeup on in, like, I don't even know how long. I had to put on a shirt and jeans today. I was like, I got to I just got to do it. I got to do it. I don't know yeah. what to do anymore. I know. I feel crazy. I've worn sweatpants yeah. for 18 days. I know. It's really crazy. Um, the idea of routine is one that I think people are intimately understanding mm-hmm. <laughs> right now. I, I'm so curious and I, I want to get into that with you because routine in our line of work is something you never really get to have. Totally. And and for the first week of stay at home, self-isolation, you know, quarantine during this pandemic, I was like having a consistent anxiety attack all day, every day, because mm. I I was like, I have this time. I should be productive. I need to do something. What should I do? I don't know what to do. I've never had so much time. And I felt like days were just going by in these waves of anxiety. And all I managed to do was cook and do laundry, 
which also <laughs> Me is too. a lot. I called my mom. I was like, how did you do this my whole life? <laughs> I don't understand. You know, I think for me it was, um, and, and I have this, this is one of like the main uh, tentacles to fear for me is the fear of the unknown. And I think that this moment really exemplifies that on a macro scale globally, which is, yes, we, we, we know that this will end, you know, or we hope it will end and we know it will end. We don't know when, we don't know what the repercussions will be. We don't know what the fallout will be. So I think that huge unknown umbrella from like the first domino is one that, you know, is, is an intense one. Um, and I think will be a real marker for mental health as a collective and as an individual, you know, in a, in a, it's going to be a real marker in in history that way. Yes. Um, I feel that so much. Wow. You know, because there's for the first time, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong in history, it's the first time where literally, you know, a huge majority of the world has to just stop and be still and either be on your own or with a small amount of people that you're living with. And that's it. That's it. Yeah. You know, um, it is so wild. And I was thinking about this the other day. I I had this thought, I, I went for a walk outside in my neighborhood and I said to a friend later on the phone, I said, is it just me or are, are the birds louder? And, and I feel like I see more bees and the air smells different. And, and my friend said to me, maybe, or maybe you're just stopping to hear them. Right. I a hundred percent agree with you. I know I just got chills having, having you say that because I completely agree with you and I smell here and see the same things. It's almost mm-hmm. like the world became like vibrant color. And yeah. you're right. For me, the sense of smell was a big one. And I didn't know if it was, you know, I think a lot of people have seen the the sort of charts and the diagrams of the pollution lessening from people not yeah. being, not literally functioning or being in their automobiles or whatever it might be. And the, the air feels so much fresher. Like I almost felt like, you know, I'm very far East with where we live. And, and I felt like I could almost smell the ocean. It was so fresh. Mm. And, um, you know, so there's, it's such a challenging dark time. And yet I think what you're saying and what I'm trying to do is find the silver lining in this moment. And what Mm. I found is with all the time that, you know, we have at the moment alone is a real moment of introspection. Mm. Um, and like a deep dig of myself and, And so when you say all of a sudden I have all this time and you don't know what to do with the fact that the hamster wheel stopped for now, you know, I, I found myself really looking inward because I feel like we're either looking down at our phones or we're looking out at the world buzzing around so fast, but Mm. we really have to work hard to look inward. And, you know, it's why we meditate or meditate or it's why we, you know, have our, moments with friends that are for that or that we see in acupuncturists or that we set aside that time or a therapist. And this is the first time in a long time for me that I've just done a real deep dive and looking inward and had the time to do it. You know, in the past for me, when I've decided to, when I, when I've thought I really need to 
stop everything for a moment because it's becoming so overwhelming. I feel like I'm drowning. That's normally when I pull the ripcord and just literally say to everyone in my life, I need you to respect the fact that I literally can't communicate at the moment. I'm going to go, you know, inward. And Mm -hmm. I, so I have to stop time for myself, but it's very rare that that literally the world says, Hey, here's, here's all the time in the world for you to do that. Yeah. I want to, I want to ask you about that because I'm thinking as I'm listening to you say that, what wisdom it requires and what a relationship with self it requires to be able to say that to your loved ones, to say, I'm in a state where I need a moment. And, and I want to, I want to go back and figure out how you got there. I I always like to go back to the beginning with guests Mm -hmm. and obviously things are so wild that we've jumped into the present. So, well, first of all, I actually feel like if we're going to go backwards, we should tell people how we know each other. And I was, I was trying to remember because I mean, I've obviously been a fan of your work forever and was like one of the million people who took surfing lessons after blue crush came out. But I'm trying to remember when we actually connected and I don't remember if it was, uh, around a volunteer thing happening in LA or around something with, I am that girl, but I remember when, was that it? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it was. And I mean, that's gotta be eight years ago now. Yeah. I mean, that's the first time I feel like we had like a deeper connection, but I I feel like we've, we've been in this we've been in this crazy game for a while, you and I, (laughs) this this acting, you know, quote unquote Hollywood game. Um, And I think, you know, I, I was really thinking about it myself and I was like, when did we first meet and how did we first really connect? I do think it was from, I am that girl. And I think it was longer than eight years ago, actually. Yeah. Maybe 10. God. Yeah. But I do think that I have somewhere in my mind that we had either bumped into each other that we'd met And Mm -hmm. I, you know, just through industry things, and I tend to, when I meet someone who, you know, has the life force like you do and the authenticity and the desire to connect, like that's like a plug for me, you know? And I was thinking, you know, because we, this, what we do is, you know, it's very artistic, obviously, but it also has a lot of artifice to it. And thus, a lot of people are attracted to the artifice in our industry. And I know mm-hmm. you well enough to know that you are not an artificial girl. You're a, you're a, a deep girl. And uh, I think that I, I, in my brain, I know that that was um, like an electrical spark for me when I met you because I, yeah. I recognize, I recognize that. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I had the exact same. I always say to people that I know who my people are by being in rooms like that where I always feel uncomfortable and I always feel like everything is weird and I always feel like I don't know why I'm there. You know, it triggers all of my fear stuff. I know who my people are because I'm like, that's the person I'm going to hang out in the corner with and have a margarita. Oh, oh, totally. Let's just go hide in the corner. (laughs) Yeah. I know. Yeah. It's always such a relief. Whenever I see you, I'm like, I have a huge breath out and then run over to you and cling to you. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, thank God <laughs> we too. can be grounded right here. And all of this weird shit can happen Madness. around us. Yeah. yeah. It's so crazy. Um, so you, like me, you were born in California. That's right. Yes. I was yeah. born in La Cañada. And I, I grew up from middle school in Pasadena. Oh, so, that's so funny. Yeah. So yeah. It's, right it's side very, by side. Very close. And my parents still, um, so my mom 
she moved to La Cunada when she was 13, um, when her mm. parents moved her there. And then that's why I was born there because she never left. But she now owns or she inherited the house that her parents gave to her. So she now lives in her, the house that she lived in when she was 13 in La Cunada. <clears throat> so it's really sweet. I, I have so many memories there. I, you know, I moved around a lot as a kid, but when I dream or when I think of home, it's that house. So there's something really beautiful about the fact that it's come full circle. And, uh, and so, you know, whenever I go over there, I, I just feel my family like deeply rooted my family, like my grandparents and their effect on me was very profound because I'm an only child. And, and so my grandmother in particular, my grandfather and my mom, my dad and me is very small, you know, so to Mm. be in that that home still and to have them all around me just it, it's a real sense of safety for me that house yeah yeah that's so beautiful i i feel that too also being an only there's something just so tight knit about your home life and and the way that you grow up what what was yours like what were you into as a kid what did, what did your parents do what was your kind of upbringing what did it look like well, I was, you'll understand this. I always say it's the only child club. Mm. It's a very unique club. Um, I was, I was an, I was an introspective kid, you know, and I, and I always wondered if that was the majority of only children anyway, because you are alone so much. So you're mm. literally alone with your thoughts or, you know, if you have anxiety about something, you're not communicating it or acting out with someone else, like a sibling, you're just sitting there on your own. I mean, the amount of times that I just thought about myself in my room, just trying to work something out or, you know, sort of having certain anxieties grow as I was coming of age or whatever it might be, but it was just, some of it was a loneliness. I think being an only child, if I'm really honest, I think there's a lonely Mm -hmm. element to it. And then there's a real, on the other, on the flip side of that, the flip side of that coin is an independence as well. So it's Mm -hmm. sort of like, how do you survive the loneliness of that dynamic in the world as a child? For me, it turned into a very fierce independence. And I, I, in answer to your question of where does that come from, that deep dive or that understanding of being able to communicate that to people that I need to be alone, I think it may start there, you know, Mm. and that I... I I know myself very very well and I and I will tell you that the times that I suffer the deepest and the most are when I'm not being true to self and mm. and so when I feel like I'm not being true to self either purposefully or not purposefully it's like pressing the red button <laughs> you know it's like there is an alert that goes off that is impossible to ignore and in that sense I I I understand that I need to do some work with myself to yeah. grow, to grow, you know. And I've always been very, I've been aware of self since I was a little kid. And when people start to know me a little bit, they ask and they get to know my mom. They ask her, you know, what what is that about Kate that she's so aware of of herself and and uh, and her, you know, her growth and her and her boundaries and her needs and. And my mom said, you know, she was always that way, weirdly. Like mm. I, I came out of the, it's funny. I came out of the womb, literally with my fist first, like Superman. <laughs> and they didn't know, my, my parents decided to not know the sex prior to my birth. And so when I was literally entering the world, the doctor delivering me said, oh, you're having a boy. 
because it was so aggressive and assured. And, uh, and my mom tells this funny story that literally as I'm, you know, exiting her and entering the world, she's, she thinks to herself, no, I know I'm having a girl. I felt it. I know it in my bones. I went, she, she was so confused because she had felt deeply that she was having a girl. And then when I came out, they said, oh no, you have a girl, but she's going to be a very determined person in the world. I'll tell you that. And wow. that's why, right? And that's why she named me Catherine, which means strong-willed and determined. Was literally because that's how I entered the world. So that is um, so cool. Funny, right? And I think there is there's definitely an, an inherent determination in me that is is quite fierce. Yeah, I feel that, girl. That fierce yeah. independence is such a real thing. And, and I wonder, cause it's interesting, you and I have two real sort of childhood overlaps aside from location. We're both onlys and we both moved around a lot. Right. And I wonder if some of that independence, it, I was literally talking to a friend about it this morning. I, you can tell I'm talking to a lot of my friends a lot right now. I'm just like on FaceTime all the time. Cause I'm don't know what else to do with myself, but I was saying for me, I feel like sort of the gift of moving around a lot was learning how to fit in in places. But then the flip side is I have friends who grew up in the same sort of school and community since they were in kindergarten and they have these lifelong friends that I don't have because I I was not really in a school for longer than a couple of years for the first, I don't know, 13 years of my life or something. Do you think that that there's something to that. Um, because when I think about it, sets are a bit like that. It's like going to school, you get really close, you make these best friends. And then maybe a couple of months or a couple of years in that job is over. And then you go to your next set and you start over. And it kind of feels like always being the new kid in the cafeteria. And I wonder, absolutely. I, for me, it's a bit of a boost and a bit of a, of a hindrance. Do you feel that? Do you have that kind of double-edged 100%. sword? Mm. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, I would say you, you really hit it right on the head for me in that one of the most influential aspects of my childhood was moving around a lot mm. as an only child. Mm-hmm. So you're right. We have, we have a two-pronged similarity there. And I agree. I gained a real sense of independence from having to move around mm. And man, when you're walking into that new school, I mean, I walked in the first day of middle school as a new school and the first day of high school as a new school. And I'm telling you, that is, that's scary stuff, you know, (laughs) it's like, it's just, it's already scary. Even if you've grown up in the same town your whole life, but without knowing another soul and not knowing yourself even as as well as you will as an adult, I mean, it's, it's terrifying. I, I will, t- you know, it's funny from, from that experience, I gained two things and I'm able to articulate it a lot better as I get older. One was a little bit of a hindrance, which was I assumed a pretty intense layer of armor and that I, that I had to undo as an adult because it wasn't serving my vulnerability very well in relationships. And that's something that is required for a, you know, meaningful relationship, mm. whether it's friendship or some, someone you're with, but it, what it really gave me on the, on the upside is this enormous amount of empathy. You know, when you say the, you always feel like the new kid in the cafeteria to this day, if I'm on a set and I see someone eating alone or I see a guest star or someone visiting for some reason, and they're just standing there, you know, entering the, 
the canteen and mm-hmm. they don't know where they're going, I always get up and go sit with them or I call them over, you know, because that, that feeling will never leave me. It's just, you know, that feeling of, I, I always say this, like, you know, I'm not one of those, you can't sit with us girls. I'm, I'm one of those girls that's like, you can always sit with me mm-hmm. because of that, be, truly because of that experience of, you know, literally I would eat in uh, the library because I was bullied in middle school so badly that I would just go and sit in the library and eat my lunch alone. And, um, and that's really where I fell in love with books. I mean, I'm a crazy avid reader Mm. and, and they, they were, they were, they, they were my companions. They really filled a a space of loneliness at the time, you know? So Mm. armor on one hand, which, you know, again, didn't, didn't serve certain relationships very well. And then also this in, in amazing kind of empathy. And so as an adult, the good news is, is that, you know, we have resources of amazing counselors and things that I was able to kind of diagnose this and understand it and, and then uh, grow into a place of leaning into my vulnerability, which um, is something that I'm quite passionate about, actually. Yeah. Well, it, it feels so tremendously important because to your point, whether it's the armor that we wear or the sense of humor that we develop, however it is we cope with our fear, those things can be great or they can be detrimental. You know, one of my best friends, Jed, is so funny because of the ways that he was bullied and he realized he could be beloved if he was the sort of class clown or comedian. And I realized that my, like you, and maybe it's a thing with, you know, sensitive, introspective girls, who knows, but I learned to wear my own version of an armor and people will say to me now, well, but you're so clear headed and and you always, you know, you look at things and you assess and you're so strong and you've always got a point of conviction. And it's like, yeah, for the world, but for myself, right. I'm petrified yeah. all the time. And I don't know how to talk about my feelings because I feel so many of them. And it's like, you, you don't realize that, that, people don't know that inside you're still a scared 13 year old kid. Totally. I mean, I found that, you know, I mean, we hear this a lot that, and I felt this a lot, you know, a lot as a young woman in that vulnerability can feel like weakness Mm -hmm. because you are exposed Yeah. and anyone who feels exposed, any wound that feels exposed doesn't feel that great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're going, ah, I don't like that feeling. Close it up. Get me out of here. You know, mm-hmm. however, you know, the, um, the, the real strength and the opportunity for growth and connection when one leans into vulnerability is just mind boggling, you know? And I've, I've found that what has helped me is to literally say it out loud, you know, and I do it to my, even in, you know, I've been married, you know, almost seven years and with Michael for almost 10, but it's, it's still a struggle a daily struggle, you know, in, in being able to identify and admit my vulnerability, you know, Mm -hmm. like we, 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 it's still, it's still something I, it's difficult for me to do. And yet when I get to that core of, I'm sorry, I acted that way. Actually, I'm feeling really, really vulnerable right now. Mm -hmm. It's everything turns, Mm -hmm. you know, everything flips and there's a, a kindness that's, that's, that grows from, from that fertile ground, you know, I love that so much. I like, I want to pause the conversation and repeat what you just said because I love it so much. I'm sorry that I acted that way. I'm feeling really, really vulnerable right now. 
Ooh, that is, that changes everything. It changes everything. It's like if the wind was blowing one way, it just immediately blows south. You know, if it was blowing north, it's blowing south, east or west. It's, it really, um, and, and it's, you know, even with coworkers, you know, I mean, or friends, it's, you know, we all learn certain behaviors that can be somewhat destructive when we don't want to feel a certain way. We don't want to, you know, admit our sensitivity or vulnerability because we're afraid, but to use that line, you know, you know, I mean, I, I said that to you before this podcast, you know, before this conversation, I said, I have to admit, I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling vulnerable about a few things Mm -hmm. and it just allows, it allows me to feel comfortable in that vulnerability and it allows the other person to have a certain mindfulness, I think. And, and if I can go a step further, being in this exchange, being on the receiving end of that, what it allows for me is to know that you trust me enough to tell me that, and then I can hold you in that space. Right. I know that you need to be held in a way, in a moment. And, I, and how else would I have known that? You know, it, I, I remember when I learned how to really understand that no one in our lives, ourselves included, is a mind reader. You know, I can say in my relationships, I only know what you tell me, whether it's to a partner or to a friend. And so when we really, to your point, get vulnerable and tell people how we're feeling or what we need, then they can give us what we need and they can hold our feelings. Right. And then you can also, you know, I'll go a step further with that, which is then, you know, then we can have a different kind of understanding or mindfulness with relationships that are worthwhile and positive and Mm. ones that perhaps aren't the right match for you at that time. Because I think if a friend or a partner or, you know, whoever it might be doesn't honor that vulnerability Mm. and there's an abuse or manipulation that happens, pay attention to that, you know, because it's, it's a very, difficult thing to expose yourself. And if someone doesn't honor that in the way that should be honored, then, then that's a moment to take a look at that relationship. And I think that's also important. Yeah. I think that's such good advice. Something that's sticking with me also, which makes me know I need to go back and ask more about it. You know, you talk about at 12 eating, eating your lunch in the library you know, retreating, retreating into the world of books to, you know, protect yourself. And also by proxy, then expanding your imagination, you know, finding your love of reading. Do you think that then out of that sort of self-rescue, do you think that that's where you fell in love with storytelling? Do you think that's what paved the way for you to want to have the career that you have now? A hundred percent. I always say it, was my love of books and still is my love of books that opened that creative artery for me mm. rather than rather than movies i mean i've i've always i've always loved a good movie or a great movie and i'm moved by them but it's the complete sort of lost feeling that i get when i read a book and i think perhaps it is the um, projection of self that goes into this fictional world mm. of make believe that you're—I mean, I'll—I'll I'll get so involved with a book that I—I 
I, nothing around me matters anymore. You know what I mean? Like there can be explosions going off and I'm like, what, what's happening? You know, <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I take my head out of the book and I'm not even aware. It's just, I, I, I have a real love affair with literature. Mm. I really do. It's, um, and I, I, and I love, I love to write and I used to write a lot when, you know, around this time of sitting in the library alone and, um, all through high school. And for some reason I ended up putting my pen down, not the book, but the pen. And I think that had to do with starting to read screenplays and feeling like that was someone else, you know, that was someone else's space. It wasn't my space to write. It was, that was, you know, that was, uh, the job of someone else. And I think that actually had to do with starting to read a lot of screenplays and, and, feeling like, and you'll understand this, I'm sure, feeling like I, I am only supposed to be in one lane. Mm. And granted, remember this is, you know, this was a 2001. I was fresh out of high school and moved from the South Shore of Boston back to LA to try and be an actress. But I didn't, I have, I've always had so many creative interests and like, really, I feel like my purpose is to connect. It's not to be an actress or to nail that scene or to win an Academy Award or to write a book. It's really, for me, my main purpose in life is to connect and connect as deeply as possible. Mm. I think that that's so beautiful and so key because then you understand who you are, not who you are in your career. Right. And those are two very different things. And to go to the beginning, back to the beginning of our conversation, that's the difference. Like when we first connected, we both... I think recognized subconsciously the the truth in each other of oh that's a person who cares about existence not what exists in this room. Absolutely, that's so well said. And I and I just I, I just think it's so important to find purpose and identification beyond what we all do because if it's just about what you do, you lose yourself. Uh, and I've seen it as, as I'm sure you have. And one of my favorite terms that you shared with me was the long game. Woo. You looked at me recently, we were in one of those rooms and we were sort of clinging to one another and you said, you're a long game girl. <laughs> and I love that so mm-hmm. much because it sort of perfectly coined how I feel inherently and who I love most also have that with them. It's like you, you know, you're a long game girl. It's not about who's in this room right now and who do I need to talk to to get, you know, da, 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 da. It's, there's, there's a long, there's a long road here. Mm. And you know, what, what decisions and what relationships and what connections, you know, are we going to um, nurture to thrive Mm -hmm. on that long game? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I think I, you know, and, and I'm only able to really discuss this in my, you know, mid, late thirties, 37. And, and when I look back at the 18 year old girl who moved on her own cross country to try and be an actress, <laughs> I can't even believe I did that. I look back on that girl now and I think, oh my gosh, you were so tiny and vulnerable in the world. At the time, I didn't think that though. At the time, I was like, "I've got this down." <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought I knew everything, but at that, but I do look back on that girl, and I think that probably the influence of people around her that I did feel like I was supposed to only stay in one lane, and I felt like if I liked fashion, or if I was interested in writing, or if I was curious about reading more, or whatever it might be 
that that wasn't the right thing to do or, Mm. you know, that, that that wasn't acceptable and that I should just stay in one lane and I should just be an actress. And if you're not an actress, then you're spilling into too many places and that's confusing for people. Mm. So you don't want to do that. And it's, it's uh, something that I really struggled with. I, I know I had conflict with when I was younger because again, going back to the feeling that I suffer if I'm not being true to self, I remember thinking to myself, but I have so many interests. Mm-hmm. You know, I just deferred from Princeton at 18 to come to LA to try to be an actress. I might go back to Princeton and study to be a psychologist. Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? There's so many things that interest me and there's so many beautiful things in the world that I'm curious about. Yeah. Why, why do I have to stay in one lane? Yeah. I don't know if you felt that I way. still I, I feel curious. that. I struggle I with that. I know, I do too. <laughs> and it's hard because, you know, oh God, I just read this book called Essentialism, which is so great. And, and it essentially says that if you're trying to do a bunch of things, you're not doing one or two things really well. And that has always kind of felt like the, the crux of the issue for me. There's so many things mm-hmm. I'm interested in and I have my hands in so many different pots, you know, whether it's politics, activism, what's going on in my local community, what's going on around the world, um, making art, the news, journalism, you know, the list goes on. But I, I genuinely am into all of it. And so I, right. I don't necessarily know how to pick. And actually, you're a person who I'm so amazed by because I go, look at all the things you're doing, but you're getting so much done. And I love it. And I, I want to I pick your brain about all of that so much more. You know what's so funny? is that I literally feel the same exact way that you do. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? I, it's so funny. I, I swear to you. I, I thought, oh, what I'm really interested in talking about with Sophia, because I feel this uh, kind of chaos of all these different things that I know I'm interested in. And I feel like those are valid. And yet she feels like she, I feel like she has everything totally, you know, solidified in, in, in a way that I don't. Girl, you know what I just did? I just bought a whiteboard and I put it up in my kitchen <laughs> and I wrote out lists of all the things I do and the things I spend time on every day and the things I want to be doing. And I was like, it's going to take me eight lifetimes. What am I going to do? What am I going <laughs> to do? That's- it's like, and then that's a new anxiety that appears. No, totally. Organization. And then, (laughs) and then there's this thing. And for me, I'm so glad that it's rooted in, you know, pride and appreciation of my friends, but even prepping for this, I'm looking at, you know, the, the technical gear that you and Michael are working on for filmmakers. And I'm looking at your making Nona and I'm looking at your movie that's coming out and I'm like, how is she getting all of this done? She's so amazing. I need her to teach me how to do this. And it's like, no matter what, we can recognize what our friends are doing, but for some reason we don't let what we're doing land with ourselves. I totally agree. That's such an important point because as you were just, you know, so sweetly talking about me, um, I was just kind of cringing and thinking, but I'm not really doing anything. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm like, but I feel like I should be doing so much more. That was what was going on. No, we need to have like a boot camp for this, honestly. And I bet (laughs) that the people listening are thinking, please, if you do that, let us sign up because this, this is, this is one of the weird crazy side effects, I think, of technology. We we can see so much, which is so amazing, but being able to see so much makes us feel like we're not doing anything. Right. And, and, and that's exactly right. And that's that's one of the relationships that I had to 
And I still have to hold myself accountable with when I, because mm. I was a little bit late. I was a little bit late to the game with social media because I had, I was fearful of it. Honestly, I was, a, I was afraid of the exposure. Same, um, same, same, same. You know, and, uh, and, and so when I signed up, there was a few things that I, you know, said to myself, if, if you sign up, then you're going to hold yourself accountable with one, putting only positive things in the world you know, mm. is that whatever's, whatever's going out there is going one way for me. I'm not going to engage in any, anything negative or, or hateful because I think there's too much of that. Mm. And that I wouldn't fall into the trap of comparing myself with what other people are doing. I would feel very, very proud of people and what they were doing, mm. but I would not allow myself to feel worse about myself. And that second part is the hardest part for sure. Oh, it's so hard. You know, it's when I see, you know, someone like you and and I'll see, oh my God, she's doing all these amazing things. What am I doing? Are you doing it? And then I'll stop that dialogue. Like Caesar Milan with a dog. (laughs) I always say, nope, nope, you're not doing that. You are going to sit down and you're going to read or you're going to sit down and you're going to look at what you're doing. But it, it is difficult. It's a discipline like an exercise. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It really is. Um, God, I feel that. Yeah. Do you think, because it's so funny, we all, again, can see each other. And I think about, you know, you did your first movie at 14, right? The Horse Whisperer was mm-hmm. you were 14. Yeah. Like, you did, a, you did a major motion picture before you could drive. And, and yeah. you know, you right out of the gate, to observers, you were so successful. What, what was that like? And, and clearly it's not the kind of thing where you have a success and then you feel successful forever, obviously. Like that's the lie. Everyone thinks, especially for people in our industry, they think, oh, those, those people think they're fabulous. And I'm always like, no one is meaner to me than me. So <laughs> take a seat. Um, and by the way, me too. I'm just saying uh, no one is harder on themselves than myself. No. And so I wonder how did, how did that feel? How did it feel to begin achieving your dreams so young? How do you think that that maybe set you up to understand this thing we're talking about now, the dangers of comparing your success to other people's, you know, what, what's it like to, to go and be on a set at 14? Well, you know, it's funny. I didn't even know that you could act as an occupation. <laughs> I didn't, I, I actually ended up auditioning for the horse whisperer because I was a, an equestrian. Mm. I, I loved horses more than anything in the world. I still do. It's, I always say there, it's like my therapy, but you know how, when there's a movie, a, you know, a larger movie, a studio movie that has a specific skill like horseback riding or surfing or ballet or something where, you know, it, there's something inherent that the, performer is going to need to know that's a, a difficult skill to have yeah they you kind of hear you kind of hear if you're in that skill like like I was I was I was showing show jumping every weekend and I was I really wanted to go to the Olympics honestly that was that was my dream wow but you know there was kind of word around the barn that Robert Redford was casting a movie out of New York and I was living in Connecticut at the time and that he was having open casting calls because he didn't want to have traditional actresses in the role. It was important for him that he had, you know, young girls who had a true affinity with horses. And I literally just took the train with my mom in when I lived in Connecticut and took it to New York city and 
went on this casting call wow. where I had never read lines in my life. Like I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing and ended up, you know, reading these lines that were given to me. And I gave them my Christmas card photo as my headshot, which you'll laugh. I'm the only one in the photo because <laughs> I'm an only child. <laughs> so when they said, bring a photo of yourself, I thought, oh, I'll just bring my Christmas card picture because you know, my parents always made me do it alone because they didn't want to be in the photo. They wanted, you know, their friends to see me growing older, but not them. Oh my God. Um, and so I literally, I remember just standing there. And again, another one of those like, you know, moments of a kid in the cafeteria where I was in the, this office with all these girls sitting around practicing lines. And it was, I just thought, what am I doing? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I put this sort of ridiculous photograph on a stack of like glossy eight by tens. You know, mine was like a four by six taken out of the frame kind of thing and put it on the stack. And I read, uh, I read the scene and left. And I, I remember just feeling so relieved, like, okay, that was over. I never have to do that again. You know, yeah. like that was scary. Now I get to go back to my life of, you know, horseback riding and, and, and schoolwork. And then I ended up getting called back hmm. and then I ended up getting called back and, you know, more and more. And then, and then the uh, casting director, who was Ellen Chenoweth at the time said, you know, Mr. Redford wants to fly you out to Los Angeles to audition with him. <laughs> and this is the moment where I thought someone's going to jump out and say that this is like all a joke, you know? I mean, because honestly, Sophia, it wasn't really, it wasn't a dream, so to speak, because I didn't even know it could be a dream. Right. I mean, I really didn't. I, I was just, I was such a normal kid back in the days prior to being able to open a phone and look at, you know, people doing entertainment things in the world. I just, I didn't even know. I didn't even make the connection. Yeah. And so I ended up getting this part and the moment I stepped on set and of course, you know, I was, I was riding the like black stallion horse, you know, the black beauty. Yeah. The, the real, the real horse that was a black beauty. So that was the thing that I cared about most. I was like, Oh, Robert Redford, fine. No, black beauty is my horse. <laughs> like that was, <laughs> that was the big, that was the big deal for me. But as, as soon as I stepped foot on set and really what I fell in love with most, it wasn't, it wasn't the, um, it wasn't the sort of feeling of success or fame. It was the feeling of community mm. of feeling like I had been so alone so much of my life as an only child and sort of having these make-believe moments in my room or having, you know, setting up sort of plays or fictional things in my mind and sort of just literally being alone, creating these scenarios. All of a sudden that became real with a community of the same like-minded group of people mm. was like magic. It was totally magic. And that community is what, I just left everything else behind when I, when I had that experience. Wow. And, and so, you know, sort of in the, that was a very long-winded answer to your question, but the idea of feeling like success, I felt like the biggest fraud. Like I really did. I felt like I had tricked everyone in thinking that I knew what I was doing. And I carry that with me for a very long time. I still do. Oh, by the way, so do I. And you know what makes me feel better? I read a couple of years ago, I can't even remember what the movie was, but Harrison Ford had a movie come out and it's like, this is Harrison Ford. He's like one of the greatest movie stars of all time. You, you know, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, like this is the man who should be the most confident. And he said, still every day on my first day on a set, I look around and I think this will be the job where they all figure out, I have no idea what I'm doing. Oh man. And I thought, I, I if Harrison Ford still feels that, Maybe I should just get over the fact that I feel this way and move on with it. I, I hear you. I, uh, 
I've gotten somewhat better, you know, because I think, you know, just with experience and age, you understand that that's just sort of part of it. Mm. But I, I carry that with me mm-hmm. all the time. And the only way that I know, honestly, um, how to sort of get more comfortable with the discomfort of that is just being very transparent <laughs> with the fact that that's how I feel. Yeah. Like I found that if, if I tried to hide it or pretend like I knew what I was doing, it was, it just ate me so horrifically inside that I just thought, I'm just going to tell everyone, like, I, I actually am feeling a bit anxious about this <laughs> first day and uh, I'm just going to jump in. But yeah, I feel a little nervous. The more honest I became about my relationship to art, yeah. the more intimacy I experienced with it. Yes. Oh, I love that because pretending that you have it all together is a surefire way to make people think you don't need anything. Absolutely. It goes back to the whole vulnerability Mm -hmm. side of things. Mm -hmm. And art is so tender and it requires vulnerability and fear and mystery and courage. It's yeah, it's a lot. It's really a lot. It's not, it's not easy. (laughs) It's, it's not easy, but I don't think I could live without it. (laughs) You know, it's, it's such a crazy, my friend, do you know uh, Katie Asselton? Do you pass? No. Okay. So Katie's, she's so great. And she, um, she, she, she directed a movie called Black Rock. It was her first, her first directorial debut that I was in. And she said, you know, we were kind of having a similar conversation and she said, you know, to be an actor is to be someone who is just comfortable with pain. (laughs) And I laughed and I I said, what do you, I said, that sounds quite deep. What do you mean by that? She goes, no, literally. She goes, when you're not working, you're in pain because you're not working. And when you're working, you're in pain because you're working. (laughs) And I laughed because I thought, God, that is such a distilled but accurate way of putting it, you know? Like when you're not working, you're thinking, why am I not working? I really want to work. I want to be on set. What's wrong with me? And then you're on set and you're thinking, I'm a fraud. I, I, if someone's going to figure it out, this is hurt. This is painful. Yeah. And I just thought, I just thought that's such a great way of like distilling it, you know, what it is to be an actor. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So I, and when I think about the acting, you, you did Horse Whisperer and then you said, you know, earlier you moved to LA at 18 from then you're in Boston and and then what happens? How does Blue Crush happen? How much time is there in between? What's the process? You know, so many people are curious about how this all starts. Yeah, I know. What always there's a lot to say about how things begin, isn't there? Yeah. So I had this experience of the Horse Whisperer sort of accidentally when I was 14, so in middle school. And then we moved. So I moved from Connecticut to the Boston area, and that was my first year in high school. So. Ooh a lot of emotions going on, a lot of, a lot of fear. And, and yet I'd had this experience that was very defining mm. for a young person. And I remember, you know, it was funny because when I was moving to, when I moved to the South Shore of Boston, I went to a small public school. There's only 72 kids in the school. It was, it's just a tiny kind of seaside um, town called Cohasset. And I remember thinking, I feel like I want people to know me just as me because they were calling me like, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with such small towns, you kind of hear what the rumors are. And I had heard that people were saying like, Oh, a movie star is moving. to this town, And I was so cringed about that. I just thought, Oh God, no, I just want to be 
Kate, you know, I'm not some movie star. And in fact, that even added to the fraudulent feeling that I was having, you know, at the time. And, um, and so there was like this, you know, everyone sort of had this perspective of this, you know, quote unquote movie star moving to this small town. And, and so I just wanted to really be normal. I really, I've, and and I think there's a lot to be said about that for me. I really, I I don't, I don't feel comfortable with the, um, I have to, I have to really work to be comfortable with the sort of glitzy side of things or the sort of quote unquote, like movie star side of things. I'm far more comfortable in just being, being me Mm -hmm. and having the relation and the connectivity. But I, I moved, I moved there first day of school and, and, and I started to do a few bit parts kind of in the summers. Um, I did a little show called Young Americans that was a, WB show after Dawson's Creek mm. <laughs> before I was the CW. And, um, and that was only one summer. And then I did a movie called Women of the Titans that I was very lucky to do because mm. it really kind of has had a lot of longevity um, and people like that movie. So I, I'm happy about that. And that was during a summer as well, but I was 16 when I did that. And, and I was really focused on school. I was a, a pretty academic kid and I ended up, you know, getting into Princeton, which was a big deal for my family. Um, because they, they, you know, they didn't, they didn't go to an Ivy League school, let's put it that way. Um, so they were very, very proud of, of me. And, and yet I felt that I had a different path. That, that thing in me that was, you know, when you're not being true to self, you start to suffer. Yeah. I remember I went to visit the campus and, you know, I was kind of blown away because I thought, again, the fraudulent thing. I thought, I don't know how they let me in here. Like I was literally rooming with like a nuclear physicist. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> as my like, you know, uh, introduction weekend or whatever. And I just thought, oh man, they, they made a, t- they really made a mistake. I don't know how I slipped in here, but like, you know, I had that fraudulent thing. And I just didn't feel like that was going to be the, the right way for me at the time mm. to, to go to college. And so I ended up deferring and I thought to myself, I had made a little bit of money enough for one year to sustain myself independently in LA from the little parts that I'd done in younger. And so I said to my parents, I'm going to move out to LA. I'm going to get a tiny place. I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to really give this one year, which as we all know as actors is like a drop in the ocean compared to how long <laughs> it takes to, you know, make a dent in this, this crazy industry. And, uh, and and so I just, I did, I, I, I moved out here. I was very, very lonely. I didn't even know how to meet people because I was 18 and obviously I couldn't go to bars or anything. So I would literally go to the coffee bean and tea leaf on the corner of my, of my building and sit just to be around people mm. because otherwise I was just constantly alone. And I would go on like four or five, six, seven auditions a day. And I was getting a little bit deterred and, and disappointed, not because I wasn't landing anything, but because the opportunity was for such the kind of typical blonde, artificial, mm-hmm. you know, no dimensional girl. And I just thought, I can't relate to that. Like, is that what people think blonde young girls are like? Because it was every single script that came my way was that characterization. Until about six months of, of living in LA, the script called Blue Crush came to me. And I had never touched a surfboard in my life, but I knew that girl through and through. Mm. Like I knew what it was like to love something so deeply and to want something so badly and um, to have the kind of grit and determination that this girl had and the the vulnerability and the fear and the doubt and the self-doubt, all the things that I was experiencing in that moment. 
was crossing over with the, with this character. And it was kind of one of those really magical moments. And I, I realized how rare they are and the older I get. That's it, it's like magic in a bottle where it's you and the character colliding. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, I just knew everything, every cell in my body said, you're, you are this person, you're going to get this role. And I went and auditioned and they called me back and I went and auditioned and they called me back and third time. They said, listen, you know, you're, we really do feel like you understand this character and that you are this person, but sadly we can't cast you because, you know, part of the prerequisite of having this role is to know how to surf and you don't know how to surf. So I'm sorry, you're not going to get this role. And I just thought, no, I, I won't accept that. I know it's like, it's like telling me that, you know, you know, that a piece of me isn't a piece of me. I like, I know that I am this girl and I just didn't, I just, it was something that wasn't, you know, computing in my brain. And so I, and I said, well, what do you, what's the plan? And they said, we're going to audition girls who surf and we're going to try and figure out a way to get them to act. And they said, we're going to take this month, three weeks to, to find that person. And so I literally went to the yellow pages and found a surf instructor in Malibu. And I called the number and I said, I need to learn how to surf in three weeks. And he kind of laughed and he was like, all right, dude, but you're going to have to come down here, you know, seven hours a day, every day. You know, it's, it's for real, man. And I said, okay. And I literally got in my car and I drove there every single day, not one day off. And after three weeks, I called the producers and the director and I said, um, I'd really love it if you give me the opportunity to watch me surf. And they were kind of like, what? <laughs> and so I, I did, I surfed and I thought I was going to have this like amazing heroic moment. And it was with one of the producers, um, he, all of the, all the creatives on that film. Um, behind the scenes were, were big into surfing. Mm. I think that really is a huge element of why the movie was successful is that the real passion was surfing. So I went and, and surfed with one of their surf instructors sort of neutrally. And I thought I was going to have this big like riding in on a horse moment. Like all of a sudden I'm like flying down this wave and I just ate it so bad <laughs> over and over and over and over for hours. Just awful, just un- unsurfable horrible mess I was and and I came in and I just said thank you for the opportunity but I felt pretty defeated and the story goes that one of the producers on the movie looked at his surf instructor and said man what do you think you know do you think she can do this can she pull this off and the surf instructor looked at him and said I can guarantee you one thing you will not meet someone more determined Mm -hmm. and that's how I got that's literally how I got that role and I often tell that story to particularly to young artists because I always say to them you know and I'm sure you 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 get this question too is sort of like how do you do it or like what's the magic wand or what's mm-hmm. how, how 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 do you what's the kind of key to quote unquote success and I always say you've got to love it you've got to love it so much mm-hmm. and you have got to have a determination and a relationship with rejection that you're so comfortable with that it no longer belongs to you you know what I mean? It's, it's just part of what it is. And you just have to, you have to keep going further than you even know is capable for yourself. Mm. And that's, that's, you know, that's how, that's how you have to approach. I think being an artist, period. I really do. I think, you know, it's, it's a real honor to be able to make a living from art. Mm-hmm. And so you have, you have to really 
uh, get gritty with it. And you have to get very, very, very good with yourself to be able to go that far, you know? God, I love that. Was it, and I guess, is it? Cause it's such a classic film that I know it's around forever. Was it a crazy thing to see how many girls started surfing after that? I always, oh, it makes me so happy. It like moves me. Like I get emotional thinking about it. And like, you know, when I, it's particularly moms now, it's really sweet because the, the, the girls who grew up watching the movie are now, you know, my age, they're like 35, 36, 37, having young girls that they're saying, I just showed my daughter and my son blue crush. And I didn't anticipate that at 18. I was such a selfish desire, you know, that, and quite honestly, I was, Sometimes I get asked the question, were you afraid of sharks? And I always say, oh, no, no. Like the, the, the waves were so overwhelming. They're like 30 to 50 feet. I was just trying not to die every day. You know, like the sharks were like nowhere in my consciousness, you know, because of how, of how truly, truly danger, dangerous it was. So I didn't have any other sort of perspective. I had blinders on with just trying not to die and also trying to make sure that I succeeded in what I promised everyone I would do, you know, to be able to lead that movie but the 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 sort of residual effect of that movie that I didn't anticipate that is brings me the most joy now is that people are inspired by that movie far more than any other movie I've been a part of and I think that if you are able to be a part of a piece of art that somehow affects the consciousness of people on a large scale, like that's really an amazing thing to be a part of. Mm. And the fact that I'm able to have been a part of something that is still inspiring to a lot of people, but mostly young girls, and not just to surf, but to, to do pretty much anything that they put their mind or heart to. That's, that's really the greatest gift yeah. to me in my career, hands down. That's so cool. Fast forward, another huge moment in your career changed your life because you met Michael doing Big Sur. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Oh, man, that's a funny story, too, because uh, I think there's sort of this misconception that it's, like amazing roles are just available to us. <laughs> <laughs> throughout our career, you know, sometimes yeah. when I'm speaking to, sometimes when I'm speaking to journalists, they'll say, um, how did you choose this career? That question. Like, how did you decide to choose you, this role? I'm like, what? Yeah. And I'm like, I know. I, and I, and I, and I always now, cause I used to kind of like not know how, not know how to answer it. Now I tell them I, truly, I think there's this miscon- misconception that there's like hundreds of roles available to all of us and that we just kind of cherry pick what we feel like doing at the time. I'm like, first of all, it's so difficult to get a movie made, period. It's even harder to get the more prolific, unique movies made. And then to put that even further, there's normally one role for the female in that entire movie. Yeah. So how does it come down to choices? It's pretty much what's going, what's available. And is, is, is there some connection in it that I can find that I can do something with, you know, to honor the movie? That's kind of it. But there's, there's something that's, it's a tough relation. It was a tough relationship for me to go from something as connected as Blue Crush and as powerful than to all of a sudden go, oh, wait, that's not every lead role. <laughs> Mm-hmm. that's a once in a lifetime thing. Oh, okay. I mean, and that's kind of, I kind of reverse engineered my career that way. And that, you know, you kind of like, in, in many ways, I think a lot of actors sort of are reaching for the role that defines them. I sort of feel like I got 
that straight out the gate mm. in many ways, which I'm so grateful for, but it did set the bar pretty high and sort of, I, I kind of struggled with the idea of a career for a while rather than constantly hitting that note, mm. which is an, an impossibility uh, for sustainability, unless you're Meryl Street. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can. <laughs> Meryl is a god. Yeah, Meryl is Meryl is a god. She can do she can do anything she wants. But it was I was I was my the the sort of long of of the short is that you know the twenties were challenging for me because I always felt again that you know very connected to self and yet it was a very confusing painful time. It was a it was my most painful coming of age time mm. was in my twenties, particularly my early twenties. Same. Um, <laughs> Oh wow. God. I mean, I, I just, that was, a, that was a rough, rough moment. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think you and I are similar this way. It's also why I feel so, I, and an, another time in my life that created yes, both armor and yes, both empathy, yes. you know, and that that moment in my life is the reason why I'm so, I have so much desire to mentor mm. because I, if I, if I, rearview mirror on that moment, I think I really could have done with a good mentor during that time. Oh, what I would have um, given. Right. And, and I, I, I'm, I was a little bit too shy and probably a little bit too hard headed maybe to even like look or ask for one. But I do, I do have a, a passion for mentoring because of that. Anyway, the twenties were tough. I was, I had just turned 28 when this movie called Big Sur came to me and I was a little bit of a wreck and that I didn't, I didn't quite, I'd sort of lost my true North a little bit, not in who I was as a person, but where, where I fit in, in being an artist mm. and the kind of voice I wanted to have. And I can understand that now because coming of age as a person, as a woman and understanding the relationship with your art, which is also your profession, is a, it's a tough nut to crack. Yeah. You know, that's that. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. So I, I I understand the confusion for that person, for that girl. But I was at a point where I was becoming quite jaded because I, you know, I'm such a purist when it comes to art, as I'm sure you are. And I, I, it was sort of like this moment where I thought, oh, not everyone's like that. Mm. <laughs> like, people have different sort of intentions and they're not because they want to create something beautiful, you know? And so yeah. I was kind of suffering. I was suffering and, and I met Michael and he is the purest artist I know. Mm. And the truly the most brilliant artist I know and the kindest and, and, and gentlest to other artists that are on his set. And man, I was like, I was like a starving person or you know, crawling in a, in a desert with no water when I met him, you know, with, when it came to my art mm. and it was like life changing first and foremost, meeting him as an artist, I fell in love with him first as an artist because he's uh, truly brilliant. And then I started to realize, I don't know if this relationship is like the normal actress director relationship anymore <laughs> because <laughs> I was I was starting to think of him all the time, you know, and I I I didn't really allow myself to feel fully because I was quite honestly being professional. Mm -hmm. And I I never I always thought of a director as my boss. Mm. Like, you know what I mean? Like I was always like 
oh no, the director's like the top of the pyramid. Like that's like, you know, I'm very professional and that's that relationship kind of is defined by that. And we, but I, but I was realizing that I was having affection for him far beyond those boundaries. And, and then it was about maybe four months after we finished the movie that I saw him, uh, I had asked him if he could take a look at his script for me. And I I actually thought he was going to become my mentor because he had said, if you ever need any advice or if you ever need any, if you want me to read a script or, you know, if you want me to break it down with you, I'm so happy to. And that was like amazing for me because again, I've never had a mentor. Yeah. And he walked, he walked into this coffee shop that I was sitting at and I had really convinced myself that this was going to be a professional mentor mentee relationship. And he walked in and I basically almost fell off my chair. (laughs) I did. I was like, Oh no, I'm like crazy, crazy in love with this person. And literally from that moment on, like we've never been apart. It was within like a couple of days that we we're like, we're going to be with each other for the rest of our lives. <laughs> oh, oh, I love that so yeah. much. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly the most defining relationship in my career and also personally, but, um, and how, it's an interesting one. Yeah. How for special sure. that you guys get to have that together. You know, so many people don't work well with their partner and you guys as an observer and as your friend, it, it appears to me that your work has deepened your love and your love has deepened your work. And like, it's this ever expanding kind of cyclical thing you've created. And it's so beautiful to watch. Oh, thank you. It's, um, you know, someone said to me once, they said, you know, to, to love and to really be loved is to be understood. Mm. And I, I understood that notion when I met Michael because I, I knew that he really understood me. And in that way, I started to understand myself in a whole nother context. And I don't know, but I guess he'd probably say the same for me. And so in that sense, like, I feel deepened as an individual. I feel like there's a lot of growth all, all the time because that's not to say, you know, it's easy. <laughs> I mean, when, you know, when there's two artists together, it's, uh, it can, it can be, it can be, you know, you're going to, you got to work through some stuff sometimes, but we always, we always come through the other end and we always come through the other end with more understanding and a, and a greater sense of depth. Mm. Um, and, and that, that's really what is most important to me as a human being is to continually have curiosity in your relationships, whether that's your relationship to your art, your relationship to your partner, your relationship to your friends or to yourself to can continue that and to continue the growth is the most important thing to me. Yeah. Is that how you guys found your way to starting your company? You, you, you co-founded make pictures productions and I'm curious, did that come out of this kind of development together? Well, yeah, because, well, we just realized we wanted to work together all the time. Mm. And I, you know, I always say there's not enough time in this lifetime for me to work with him enough I, he's my favorite director and that's not being biased as his wife. He really is my favorite director. And, um, it's just the greatest high working with him. He's one of, he's one of the greats. He really is. And so I sort of feel like I, with, with our production company, I was able to sort of chain him to me that way. (laughs) No, it was more, it was more of, um, just realizing that we had stories to tell and we wanted to tell them together. And whether that was him directing and, 
me in it or both of us producing something or, or he's very much encouraged me to direct, which I, I really like to do. I was very intimidated by it. And I felt like, again, that was something someone else did sort of that going back to the beginning of our conversation of staying mm. in your lane. And he, he's really an extraordinary partner to me and that he encourages me to step outside my comfort zone and encourages me that, no, you will make a great director. I, I know it. And yeah. he has more faith in me than I have in me. And that's a, that's a really incredible thing to have, you know, in a partner, especially when, especially when things are hard, especially when you're feeling uncomfortable with uh, stepping outside your comfort zone to have that kind of a cheerleader in your core is amazing. That's so special. And I am for him, for sure. I'm his biggest fan. <laughs> <laughs> so when you guys started the company, where did the idea for Nona come from? And, and will you tell our listeners who maybe haven't seen Nona yet what it's about? Yes. Um, so Nona is a movie about a girl who we find she's living in, a, in San Pedro Sula in Honduras. And she is uh, very poor and she's alone. Her mother has left her and she, she doesn't have um, very much family around her, people that she has any kind of connection with. And this young, cute boy happens to see her on the street and sort of starts flirting with her. And, you know, they, they create this sort of very sweet kind of back and forth connection. And he says to her, you shouldn't be here. You should, you know, you should come to America. Like, you know, you've, you've got a lot in front of you. You've got a lot to offer. And, you know, if you come with me, then, then I can help you do that. And so there's a lot of the movie, I'd say like 65, 70% of the movie that is kind of this like beautiful coming of age story between these two people. And just as Nona starts to realize something's not quite right, the audience starts to feel like their heart is sinking and that she ends up crossing the border and being sold into sex trafficking. And he was her coyote. And, you know, so it's, it's ultimately, uh, it's, it's ultimately a, a fictional narrative on why sex trafficking, human trafficking happens and mm. how it happens. The way that the movie came about is that Michael was driving home one day from work and he had heard a story on the radio that a sex house was busted not so far from our own residence. And he came home and said, he, he told me about it. And he said, you know, I don't know much about human trafficking. I know what it is. And I know what sex trafficking, trafficking is, but I didn't realize it was happening on our doorstep like this mm. and so prevalently and that no one's talking about it. And so he said, I'd like to do a little bit of research and see if there's something here for a narrative. And he did. And he said, I'm going to take some time to write a screenplay. And, and, I'd, and I'd like to get your support on that. And then I'd, I'd like for you to read it and to you know, see if we can make this thing. And so he did. He shut himself away for, for a while and wrote the screenplay. Mm. And M Michael's half Mexican. His, his mom crossed the border when she was a young girl. So I think for him, it was important that the movie was written in Spanish. It was important that, you know, it really honored this, this young girl and that her dignity was not stripped regardless of her circumstances. Um, there was a lot of things that were important to him about this movie. And it was a very personal stroke, I think, in many ways. And so he wrote, he finished the screenplay. And as I said, it's in Spanish. And he said, I'd like to cast an unknown. And I want to go shoot, shoot it myself in San Pedro Sula in Honduras through Guatemala and all through Mexico. <laughs> and I only laugh because 
uh, most people ask me, what does that feel like as a wife to get that kind of a, a response? Because it quite literally, San Pedro Sula is known as the murder capital of the world. They're, these places that he, he went to shoot in is, um, they are the most dangerous places in the world. Mm. There's some of them. And, um, and I always answer, I, I know who I married. I married a real cowboy, a real, a real cowboy filmmaker, and that he is going to tell the story he's going to tell. Mm. So, you know, you got to jump on the horse with him and figure out how to best support and protect his vision. And in this case, his safety. And so I ended up, there, there was no one who would finance the movie because of all the, all the things that I had mentioned. The mm. fact that it was going to be an unknown Latina girl. The whole movie is going to be in Spanish. And it's pretty much impossible to get this movie insured. Mm. So I said to Michael that I will finance the movie. And so I acted as executive producer. And I you know, literally put my money where my mouth was. And it was literally you know, me staying at home in Los Angeles and sort of holding the front line here, which was really important because there was a lot of fraud and um, corruption and in, in, uh, purchasing things for, for them. For example, if I would buy certain plane tickets that could only go from one city to another, um, I would have to buy it like five or six times because the, the fraud and corruption was so bad. And I would have to call American Express and say, I know this is strange, but you have to continue allowed for this yeah for this to happen for the next you know 18 days and then I'm gonna you know call you again and tell you exactly what you know isn't meant to be charged and they were like what and and then you know Michael was obviously on the front lines and filming the movie he acted as the writer the director and and the cinematographer of of the the picture so he was he was uh, he was wearing a lot of hats and we ended up making this movie and it, it was, I always jokingly say it was like our first child. Mm. <laughs> no, no, it was our first child because it was the first time that, you know, we really kind of labored something of love into the world that, that was very, very important to us. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And I hope that everyone who's listening, aside from being wildly inspired by how you guys bootstrapped to make this happen and tell an important story that financers might not consider quote unquote viable in market. I I really hope everyone goes and watches it, you know, during, during this time while we're all quarantined and isolating, I think watching inspiring art can really be so healing. And I also think it's such a great, you know, way to support artists during this time. So Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Oh my God. And if, if you don't mind me just um, also adding to that, that if, if, if anyone listening does watch the movie, a lot of the, a lot of times I get asked, what can I do? Mm. You know, sort of what's the call to action because it can, it can be quite a moving experience to watch the movie and also inspiring. And what I like to do is to encourage people to go to cast LA, which is the coalition against slavery and trafficking. And they do a phenomenal job Mm. of combating sex trafficking and human trafficking and also helping survivors of human trafficking find their footing again in the world. They're an amazing group. Love that cast LA cast LA. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And moving forward from that, with that experience under your belt, what comes now? You know, you guys, you have your company, you have this, this initiative you run out of Montana, you're developing new things, a Sharon Tate biopic. I mean, what's, what's coming? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, we have, we have a lot of spinning plates and as you know, it's, you know, we, we, 
there's a lot of interest and then the plates spin at different times and they land at different times. Mm. So it's, um, I'm not quite sure which one will land next. What I can tell you is something that I've been working on. <laughs> Yay. We're going to talk about it. Do you mind? So, because do I mind? No, I'm so thrilled. I just, you know, I don't, oh my God. I never want to pressure you into sharing something, but oh my God, I want you to tell the world so badly. Well, it's the, the reason why I thought to sort of bring this up now is because when you were saying what's happening next, as I'm sitting here in quarantine, like, like, you know, everyone else, I, I don't have control over the production mm-hmm. that's going to go next because we, we, we can't mobilize a crew mm-hmm. and, you know, it's, it's very, it's concerning and, and there's a lot of fear, I think, behind obviously people not knowing when they're going to work next. But what I, what, I, what I can say for myself is that there's something that I've been working on for a little over a year now, and it is a space. It is something I call my little corner of the internet, but ultimately it's a blog and it's called Kindest, and that is spelled K-I-N-D dot E-S-T, which means it is a space that is established kind. Mm. I love that so much. Oh, thank you. And ultimately it was born out of a very heartbreaking experience for me. Um, I lost my grandmother a little over a year ago Mm. and she is like my favorite person in the world. And uh, it was a very difficult loss for me. And I was with her when she passed, which was a profound experience in itself and one that mm. was absolutely defining in my life and a real honor um, to, to be there with her and, and help her pass. But with, with that said, it was difficult to go back to everyday life mm-hmm. and life as we know it. And so as I started to, after about a week of that experience, open emails or my fingers sort of, you know, habitually clicking to Instagram, it was like walking into a room that I didn't want to be in because I didn't know how to experience and process grief in the modern day world, in our digital age. And I thought to myself, if I feel this way, there has to be other people feeling this way because we are experiencing grief all the time. You know, it can be the loss of a loved one. It can be the dissolving of a relationship or a friendship or whatever it might be. Heartache, loss, grief are things that I think we don't have a lot of patience with Hmm. in today's world. And I thought, I wish we could have a dialogue about that grief in today's world. And that's literally how this blog was born because I thought, well, why don't I, why don't I pick up pen to paper and write about it? And, you know, since we've, Kind of, I feel like we've come full circle in many ways and that mm-hmm. I used to write. And I, again, as I told you, I felt like that was something for someone else for a long time. And so for me to pick up the pen again and to own this space as me, when I say vulnerable, I, I mean like ocean, ocean filled vulnerability. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's going to be a space that is obviously established kind, but essentially it's a place that is for connectivity, for empathy for curiosity. I want people to smile when they go to this space. You know, it's not, it's not all heaviness. It will be things that are thought provoking. And then there'll be things that are just fun. And like, you know, just things I like, or just discoveries that I want to share with, with the community. Mm. But ultimately it is about creating a community, a kind community. 
and why it's so vulnerable to me, honestly, because I really, I had to think about this. I, I, I could have put this out a while ago and I didn't. And I, and I thought to myself, why, why have I been, why have I been delaying this? And I really do believe it's because it's a leap from me that feels vulnerable in a way that is exposing me as Kate. It's not Kate that you know, you know, on a red carpet, or it's not Kate the actress. It's, it's really just me. And I'm very excited for that. And, and also a little bit nervous, <laughs> but I really hope it's something that people connect to. And I, and I, and I really believe as we sit in this moment of uncertainty that, um, there is a lot of opportunity to be introspective and, and to get to know yourself more and to lean into yourself, even when it's uncomfortable or hard, because that really is where the ground is most fertile to grow. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited for this to launch. I just can barely contain myself. Thank you so much. It's, it's a seedling. <laughs> it really is. And it's funny because sometimes, you know, I imagine anyone listening would think, oh, you know, quote unquote celebrities, they have like a staff of people like creating these spaces for them. And I can guarantee you, it is literally just me. <laughs> you know? It's myself. I'm like, thank God for a few friends who are, who are helping me on this adventure, but it, it is not a room of, you know, people hired. It is truly a reflection of me. And uh, I'm very, very excited for people to come on in and see what it's about. I'm so excited for it. Yeah. I really am. The only the the, the only prerequisite is that you you've got to be kind. The internet needs a kind corner, so thank you for making one for us. Yeah. When you talk thank about you. quarantine and introspection, that that's really where we started today. You know, just talking about what this has all been like. You're mentioning that you've had time to reflect. For people who maybe don't know where to begin, who are stuck in the anxiety mm -hmm. and don't feel like the realizations are coming so easily. How are you doing that? You know, we're, we're, we're 21 days into this or however long it's been here for us in California. How are you taking time to create space for introspection? How are you making those questions feel like they're getting you somewhere? I have been doing a few things. I have well, I've been cooking a lot. I love to cook. And my husband mm. hilariously is an amazing baker. I'm like the world's worst baker, <laughs> but we've sort of, we've sort of flipped the traditional husband wife narrative on his head. Like he's the most amazing baker and I'm just like a disaster, but I do love to cook. So there has been a lot of things mm -hmm. sort of on the, on the stove and in the oven of our house. And I do think there's something quite therapeutic about that. Yeah. I was actually very intimidated to, to learn how to cook. But when I was 28 and I became an instant stepmother, I, I thought it was pretty important to learn for a growing, a growing young girl. Yeah. Um, Jasper was 12 at the time. So that was why, truly why I learned to cook, but I love it now. I think we had talked about this and I think a lot of people are experiencing a lot of walking at the moment yeah. and how, and you're like, we had said how, you know, the air smells fresher or, you know, you can see more vibrant colors or more bees buzzing, more butterflies going. And I, I agree with you. I thought, is it just because it's spring or is it, mm -hmm. is the air literally fresher and are things literally more vibrant because we have stopped, mm -hmm. you know, as, as human beings, we have literally stopped. So we've allowed other things to um, grow. grow. Mm. And I, I, and of course, you know, I love to read, as I've said, 
but I, one of the things that, one of the things I've taken on, I've, a friend of mine challenged me to this for the month of April, and I'm really glad she did. When I pick up anything that I f- inherently feel like I'm immediately not good at, I toss it aside very quickly. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yes. Are you like that? Oh my God. It's so <laughs> hard for me. There, it, the, the, the disaster of being a perfectionist is you want to be really good yes. at something, but then when you're not, you won't devote the time to become good at it. I know. I, it's so crazy. It's, it's, that's, that's one of the, you know, it's funny. I, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to challenge you to that. Okay? okay. I think during this time we should, we should take a look at what that is in us and try and try and uh, love that space about ourselves a little bit more. Cause I think I'd like to grow in that area a little bit better mm. than, cause I, you know, I probably have some missed opportunities because I've tossed things aside cause I wasn't immediately perfect at it. Yep. <laughs> but, but one of them for me is meditating. So I'm, I, I literally, the first time I tried to meditate, I just thought, I'm so bad at this. I can't, I can't still my mind. I can't breathe in and out. I don't even know what I'm doing. I can't, I'm not good at meditating. And Mm. I just like literally like threw it aside. And a good friend of mine said, can I challenge you to a month of meditation? And I thought, yeah, you can. So that was, that was an amazing opportunity that she, that she offered me. And so I'm on day three. (laughs) Awesome. <laughs> and uh, day one, I was like super proud of myself. Day two, I was very frustrated with myself, but I worked through it. And day three is 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 uh, yet to be seen. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna do it as an e- evening meditation. But that's one thing that I'm that I'm experiencing and I'm leaning into. I love that. And I and I you know one of the things that I've loved doing is connecting with friends. I think a lot of people are doing this. Is just. Um, the, the silver lining, I think, in this in this dark time is that we are truly experiencing an incredible global empathy. And I mean, look, talk about kindness. You know, I mean, I have become more aware and close, not physically, but in awareness of my neighbors, with friends. I've had friends check in on me and me check in on friends that I haven't spoken to in a very long time. Mm. It's just, listen it feels like there was a moment that the world said, you all need to stop and remember what it means to be human. Yeah. What is, what is the unique quality of being a human being? I feel it's that. love. Yes. And if we can become more empathetic, more loving, more connected, more vulnerable and comfortable in our vulnerability from this moment, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be had for that, you know? Yeah. Hmm. So I'm just trying to have an appreciation for that. And, and the more I lean into the appreciation of that and commit to the growth that is presented during this time, the less fear I have. Mm. Um, yeah. I really love that. And that is our way to create some semblance of forward motion in our own lives while we're all stuck in this together. Absolutely. And I, and, you know, I encourage people to, even if you don't think you're a creative person, try something creative, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. cause it can be scary. I think if, if, you know, if you've always thought, Oh, I always wanted to be a painter. I always wanted to be a musician, you know, lean into it. Like now is the time there's, the, there's a really, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing that we're, that we're able to, um, you know, have the digital capacity at our fingertips. And I think there's something beautiful about being able to do things that you've never wanted to do and maybe have the time to do it. Yeah. I really love that. Okay. So I have a final question for you. It's my favorite thing to ask everyone because I want to be 
respectful of your time, even though I just want to hang out with you on the Zoom call for the rest of the day. Um, Me too. <laughs> we'll we'll plan we'll plan a breakfast or a coffee over Facetime. Oh, good. Once we're done. You you because you can't leave. Me no, now. you can't leave me either. Just never. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Ever. Um, but as you know, obviously the the title of the podcast is called Work in Progress, and I am curious what in this moment feels like a work in progress for you. I always feel like a work in progress with patience. Mm. And I particularly feel like the world, the earth is demanding patience globally, but I'll take Mm. that as an individual, as an individual challenge. Um, You know, there's, there's a lot of benefit to being impatient because you can get a lot done, but Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) the, the downside of it is obviously, um, you know, getting in your own way or, you know, not, not allowing enough time or space for something to develop, which is absolutely important. My, my husband said to me when he first met me, darling, one day you're going to learn to be a more patient gardener. He's, he's 13 years older than me. He jokingly says he's in the future. Um, (laughs) he, uh, he says one day you'll learn to be a more patient gardener. And I truly said in our wedding vows, I vow to be, to learn to be a more patient gardener. And so Mm. how I, how I feel I'm a work in progress and probably how I'll always be a work in progress, um, is, is patience. And so particularly in this moment that we're living in, I am devoted to that challenge. I love that. Patience feels very apropos. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, I love you so much. I you love are, you you're, so you're, much. You're doing such great things in the world. I just admire you and love you to pieces. Thanks, Mama. Same. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. This episode was edited by Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Cloud Brilliant Anatomy.